Hi there. The reading this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. you find it in your service sheets on page 4. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the Lord, the God of your ancestors is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God <coughs> at Horeb when he said to me, <coughs> Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things. The Lord your God has a portion to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Thank you. I have a love-hate relationship when it comes to technology. I love it and I hate it. It's a bit like Marmite for me. I don't know what you're like with technology. Perhaps it's just middle age. I'm reaching that uh, certain age of the right side of 40, you know, north of it. Um, I like the fact that I still have a laptop that's now eight years old. That When I took it to the Apple man, because the screen had gone for the second time, they said, oh, not seen one of these for quite a while. <laughs> I like the fact that my bicycle, I'm fortunate enough to have two bicycles, just to be honest and full disclosure, but my bicycle that I use every day has quick release nothing. It's bomb-proof. I like that. I can leave it in the center of town and the potential thieves would not be interested in it. I like driving an old car. Not least is it a Volvo, which is no better car than a Volvo, of course. But I like the fact that it's old so that when one of our children who um, was locked, this is full disclosure again, they were locked in their car by their mother as a joke this week um, because they wouldn't leave the car when they should have done. And so they used their initiative and used both feet to open the door. 
But as they open the door with their feet um, against it, they open it towards the house. And so one of our doors has been slightly modified um, this week. But uh, as I was thinking about my relationship with technology, it got me thinking about um, the attitude our culture has to things that are old, or should I say mature. I'm not talking about people, but I was thinking about the attitude our culture has to things that are old. So you have a new mobile phone, and a new edition is launched every nine months. It's not every year, it's about every nine months. Um, You can think about number plates. It used to be an annual thing, now it's every six months. You can think about uh, the reality that in schools, especially history teachers, don't like using uh, textbooks that are more than four years old because then they're out of date and they don't look as good and whatnot. And and then we have the obsession with youth when it comes to face, figure, and fashion. What I want to do this morning is look at a kind of a high-level view of chapters 4 and then next week into chapter 5, because we've got something that is so contra what our culture thinks about technology and the obsession with youth. We have in these chapters something that's called the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are about 3,000 years old. And yet in these ten sentences that a few of us could list off all ten, some of us could list off a few, someone has the audacity to say that these ten sentences that are 3,000 years old, it's not the last edition, it's not an eight-year-old laptop, it's not a 17-year-old car, these sentences that are 3,000 years old, they contain truths that are the glue for society, they're the foundation for human life. If only we would follow the God who gave them. They're like um, the reality that when you're building a a structure, I was on the train this week, went up to town to see some people on Tuesday, and I noticed a new uh, building site, a new block of flats was being put up. And the first thing they do is to put up the lift shaft in the middle. And then the structure is built around it. After they've done the foundations, they put up the lift shaft so they can gain access. And there's there's a structure in the middle of the building. That's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments to a Christian are the structure of an intimate relationship with God. But when we come to them, and look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This is the, uh, the burden of the passage. Hear now, Moses says, hear now, O Israel, the decrees and the laws that I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live. If you really want to live, you've got to engage with the Ten Commandments. You've got to engage with them. The only thing that can come into your life and give you life is the Ten Commandments somehow. They contain the righteousness of God. But when we come to the Ten Commandments, these 3,000-year-old sentences, when we come to them, we have at least three misconceptions that I want us to address this morning. We'll look at them a little bit more detail next week, but I think there are three mistakes that people can make when it comes to the Ten Commandments, three basic uh, misunderstandings that we need to remedy, or they'll just crush us. They will crush us. We don't understand, although we can list a few, the context that the law comes in. We don't understand the character of the God who spoke these words. And so if we don't understand those things, these Ten sentences will crush us. They won't lead to freedom. They would lead to a straitjacket. They won't lead to life. They would lead to death. So let's look at the first of three mistakes I think we can make when it comes to the law of God. Number one, we miss the motive. We miss the motive. The motive of obedience to the law is intimacy with God. Do you get that? The motive for 
Obedience to the law is intimacy with God. It's about a relationship. Verse 10. Moses says, verse 10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, when he said to me, this is God speaking, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land. First thing God says, and Moses reminds a new generation, that's the context of the book, in case you've missed the last few weeks, the context of the book in the first four chapters, right up to chapter 4, verse 40, is it's a history lesson that says, this is what happened to your fathers, this is what happened, the phrase is used, to your ancestors. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. says uh, Moses, on behalf of God, to God's people, I want you to learn from their mistakes, I want you to remember God's faithfulness, I want you to trust him as you go into the promised land. I want you to trust him as you uh, go into the future. Take God at his word because he's been faithful. It's the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. But in verse 10, Moses is saying, remember why you're to obey the law. It's not to win God's favor. Let me prove it to you. Verse 10, remember where you received the law. Or rather, remember when your ancestors, remember where your fathers were and your mothers were when they received the law of God. Were they in Egypt? No. Where were they? They were in the desert. And that's very, very significant. They were in the wilderness. And that means that they had already been rescued. And that explains the first motivation of engaging with the Ten Commandments and the law of God is intimacy with him. The people were already rescued. God's people were already saved. God's people were already liberated. And then God spoke to them and said, in light of what I've done to you, this is how you are to live. If we did a straw poll even this morning, even better if you did it on the 6.30 going up to London tomorrow, if you had a space, not a seat, just a space. And you said to people, hey, what do you think of the Ten Commandments? They may say something like, oh, the Ten Commandments, that's that old stuff. Um, it's a bit like the laws of the land. It's a bit like government. Government, they're, they're just there to cramp your style. I want to be able to do 45 miles an hour, if that's at all possible on the M25. Normally you do less. I want to do 80 if I want to. I don't want to do 70. See, the laws of the land, they just constrict me. It doesn't get anything worse when it comes to taxation. I don't want to pay those guys in Whitehall any money. They just rob me left, right, and center. You might think that the laws of the land and the laws from government are there to cramp your style, to limit your freedom, and they're there, especially when it comes to taxation, just to get enough money to keep the big Whitehall machine going. The word in the Bible is Torah, the law. So the Hebrews is a simplistic word for saying the law of God. And it's to do with a law that a father would have with a son. It's an instruction word. It's a, a teaching word. And the motivation is so important. The reason a father would seek to instruct his son is not to win a relationship or gain his favor. The reason a father would instruct a son is because he wants him to grow into maturity. He wants him to succeed, to go even further than he has gone in his life. It's not to win his favor, the son already has it. 
He already has a status with his father that no one else has. He can call him daddy. He has his love unconditionally on him. But a father instructs his son so that he might grow into a mature, intimate relationship and that he might go on in the world. And that's the context here. Moses is saying, here's the motivation for obeying the laws of God. Here's the law, obey it, verse 10, and it will save you, it will deliver you. And if you obey enough, I'll pull you out. If you don't obey enough, I'll pull you out. God doesn't say that. The relationship is already there. Where is the law given? It's given in, not in the promised land, it's not given in Egypt, it's given in the wilderness. So God has already rescued and saved his people. He's set his love on them. He's chosen them. And then God says through the lips of Moses in this chapter, now because I want to be your God and I want you to be my people, because I want you to grow and I want you to blossom like a son does to a father and a father does to a son. See, I want you to grow and blossom. I want you to inherit the land. I want you to be everything that I want you to be and everything I've designed you to be and everything I've made you to be because we are in a covenant relationship. This law, these 10 sentences, they don't win my favour. You already have it. I'm not going to rescue you if you obey them. I already have. I'm not going to love you any more if you obey them than if you don't. It's about an intimate relationship than they already have. These 10 sentences, this commandment, these laws that I'm going to give to you, it's about life in a relationship that's already established and it's about intimacy. It's called the law of God. And one misconception we can have is that we can think, we can think that God will love us more if we keep them. We can think that uh, from these sentences, there, there are two motives, I think, two misconceptions that we can have under this section. Two reasons that we can approach God. We can understand that the law of God is, it's a bit like a ladder. I see the law of God and I want to obey it. If I obey it enough, if I succeed enough, if I keep it enough, then God will hear my prayers. And if I work hard enough, and if I obey enough, and if I attend enough, and if I read enough, and if I give enough, and if I don't do this stuff enough, then God will love me and he'll be pleased with me. He will help me, he'll accept me, and then I know I'm going to heaven if I keep the Ten Commandments. That's one way that we can understand the law. But then here's the other way. Here's the gospel way. The gospel way is I've already been saved. I've already been rescued. I'm already loved in Jesus. I don't keep the law so that I will win God's favour. I already have it. I've been saved through Jesus' death. I've been forgiven and empowered by his resurrection life. I have the spirit in my heart. My name is written on his hands because of the cross. And I want to obey the law of God. Not to win his favour. I already have it. But I want to become like him. I want an intimate relationship with him. I want to please him. And I want to know him more. Two completely different motivations for obeying the law of God. One is like a ladder, saying, if I obey enough, if I work hard enough, then I can get from, uh, from earth to heaven. I can win his favor. I can win his smile. But the gospel way sees that you've already Receive God's favour in Christ Jesus. You already know his smile. You already know his face. You already enjoy his approval. And so you obey to enjoy intimacy with him, not to win intimacy. Two completely different attitudes to the law. And that's because they are two completely different religions. One is works, one is grace. 
One is Christianity. One is all the religions in the world thinking that we can win our way to God. And Christianity says, no, you will never be good enough. You'll never work hard enough. You'll never be pure enough. And so God in Christ has come to rescue you. One way will crush you. If you think that the law is a ladder to get from uh, earth to heaven, it will crush you. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be able to work hard enough. You'll never be able to meet God's standards. You can become uh, either proud when you think you have a good day, or you'll become guilt-ridden and crushed when you have a very bad day. But if you see the gospel, even in these sentences here, if you understand the gospel, you see that God has already provided for you. The law is given in the wilderness. God has already rescued his people. The law of God is given to us even 3,000 years later and God has provided in Christ for his people and rescued us from our greater enemies, from sin and from death. And so now you can say, I have been saved if you're a Christian and I want to obey God, not to win his favor. I already have it. But I want to have a, a personal relationship with him with nothing in the way. And when you understand the law that way, it, it transforms you. It doesn't crush you. It doesn't guilt-ridden you. It doesn't laden you. It liberates you because you're free already. I was watching TV this week. We bought a TV in the summer. We, we've had a 15-inch minuscule TV that you need a telescope to watch. And we treated ourselves and got a slightly bigger one this year, so now that you can actually see it. Um, a TV, it doesn't make any demands on my life. A TV, I just consume and enjoy the, most of the rubbish that comes out of it. I have to turn off, but I enjoy sport and I enjoy a few other things. But it makes no demands on my life. I just consume. People are not like TVs. Personal relationships are not like televisions. They're very demanding. People can make demands on you. People can issue commands upon you. People can be really draining upon you. It's not my wife, she's out of the building. But, but there are some people, depending on who they are, who have more access to you than others. So if you're a parent, your children have, I trust, unlimited access to you. As long as they can wake me up, they've got unlimited access to me, day and night. Work colleagues, well, yeah, they've got access to you, nine to five, Monday to Friday, unless you're on a shift pattern. But depending on the person, depends on how much authority and how much access they have in your life. Children have unlimited access. Um, aged parents, they need unlimited access too if you're caring for them. But what about if it's the God Almighty, the God who made you and controls the universe? How much access do they have to your life? How many demands and commands could they rightly impose upon you for your good and growth and freedom and enjoyment? Surely the God who owns the universe and the cosmos and the mountains, all the fish in every sea, all the cattle on every hill, surely they would have unlimited access on your life and they could issue commands on your life because if they own everything, that means they own me and you as well. And that's why in John chapter 14, Jesus says, he who has my word and obeys my word. My Father and I will come to him, and we will manifest ourselves in him. Friends, if you want God to be real to you this morning, if you want to know him personally, you obey him. You listen for his voice in his word. You seek to understand more of his character, 
and you obey him, not to win his approval. You already have it if you're a Christian in Christ Jesus. But you listen to his voice and you obey his word. It's trusting and it's obeying, not to win your salvation. But it's trusting God for the future and it's obeying him in the present because of who he's revealed himself to be in the past. It's the first um, mistake we can make when it comes to the law. The motive for obedience is not to win his favour. It's for intimacy with God so that we can come close to him in Jesus. Here's the second one. We'll go a bit quicker. What's the result? If you know God personally through his son, if you enjoy intimacy with him as you obey his word, the result of obedience is always freedom. It's freedom. It's not slavery. It's not bondage. The result of obedience is always freedom. It's not bondage. You can see that from verse 1. In verse 1, Moses says, Obey the law of God. Why? That you might live and you might possess the land. Here are two things. People think if I became a Christian today, the one thing I'd lose would be my freedom. That's wrong. It's completely wrong. You think I'd have to give up all this stuff that I know God wouldn't approve of. Well, that's probably right. But the one thing you would not lose is your freedom because freedom, true freedom, is freedom within boundaries. That's always true. I regret that I cannot play the piano. My musical history is two weeks playing the recorder and then I think either I left or I was told to leave. I'm that bad, but I love music. You cannot tell me if you listen to the piano being played or the guitar being strum or the trumpet being blown into that people who play musical instruments do not have discipline. They have discipline and every note has been practiced and when you know the rules, then you can mess around with the rules. But it's years and hours of doing scales and learning pieces and it's discipline. And when you have discipline, then you know freedom. When you have discipline, then you know freedom. I'd love to dance, I can't dance to save my life. I was so embarrassed about not being able to dance that we didn't dance, we didn't have the traditional uh, thing at the end of a wedding ceremony. I don't even know what it's called. What's it called? The first dance. I said, I don't want to do it because I would tread on your feet and it would be the beginning of the, the end in terms of our relationship, even though it's just begun. I would love to be able to dance, but I can't do it. There are moves that you can learn and it's discipline. And when you know discipline, you can enjoy freedom. Say you're looking out the window and you notice a bird. There were loads of birds in our garden yesterday going for the feeder. Imagine you met a bird and it talked to you. And the bird said, I wish I could do a high dive. I've always wanted to be a king, or I've always wanted to be a swimmer. But they're not designed for that. Or you could say, hey, uh, imagine there was a, a fish, and they said, I always wanted to soar like an eagle. Well, you're not designed for that. It's freedom within the boundaries of what you're made for. Here is Moses, and he's saying, freedom always comes in hand with discipline. And freedom always comes in hand as a result of honoring your design." And so it's hard work and discipline, it's obedience to God through his word, but also freedom comes as a result of honouring your design. So fishes are not designed to fly, birds are not designed to swim, and if you buy a new car, there's one thing you can do, which the keys are put in your hand, you can either ignore the maker's instruction manual, no one likes doing maintenance, no one likes changing the oil, but it needs to be changed according to when the manufacturer says it should be changed. 
No one's going to come around your house and say it's a thousand pound fine because you changed the oil three months late or you didn't change it at all. No one's going to give you a fine for that, but you're foolish if you don't obey the maker's instructions. And Moses is saying here in verse 1, Obey the law of God for your good that you might live and that you might possess the land. It's freedom with discipline. It's freedom with obedience. It's freedom with honouring your design. You might say, well, how? How do I know what I'm made for? I'm new to this Christian stuff. Well, you do it by looking at the maker's instructions, which is in the Bible. You don't look into your heart to know your purpose. Our hearts lie to us, but God never does. And you will only find true rest when you find true rest in Jesus. Ask your creator, ask your designer. It's like the bird who finally says, I'm designed for flying, not swimming. Or a fish who says, I'm designed for swimming, not for flying. Or an owner of a new car who says, I'm going to listen to the maintenance manual and do what it says. Because I didn't make it. It can be true for you that you can know true freedom if you listen to the maker's voice and obey the maker's instructions. You can know intimacy with God if you uh, ask him to uh, come into your life through his son, by his spirit. And it can change you. But also listening to the maker's instructions can change whole communities. I like reading history. And what's very interesting to me is about how the uh, abolition of slavery actually happened. How did it happen? Slavery had been widely used and widely acknowledged and widely accepted for centuries. Not for decades, but for centuries. If you read um, history books, it says that for thousands and thousands of years, if not hundreds of years, people would um, attack, an army would come and they would defeat another army and then all the people under their authority would become slaves to them. Part of a monopoly growing, part of their empires being expanded. If you conquered another person, you'd put them in chains and you would take them off to your homeland. You would use them for the growth of your kingdom. So where on earth did the idea that slavery was wrong where did it come from? Where did it come from? It came when a man called William Wilberforce stood up for what was wrong. It came when the Clapham sect that was founded by John Newton stood up and said, this is wrong. Both Christian men who looked at the maker's manual, they looked at the Bible and said, this is not honouring to people. People, regardless of the colour of their skin, regardless of their gender, are equal before God in created dignity. There is inherent value to human life. Slavery is wrong. Are we obeying the owner's manual? That's what Moses is saying. Verse 1, obey the law of God that you might live. What outrageous thing to say. No, it's not. Because the maker knows his subjects. God doesn't need us, but he longs for a relationship with us. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. Here are two misunderstandings. The first one, the right motive for obedience is always intimacy with God. Here's the second misunderstanding. Obedience does not mean slavery, it's freedom. When you know God, if you speak to mature Christians here and say, oh, what, have you missed out on drugs? Have you missed out on sex, drugs and rock and roll? And No, you've not missed out at all. It's freedom, it's liberty, it's life, it's joy. It's knowing God personally. Here's the third one, finally. Here's the third misunderstanding when it comes to the law. Obedience is always about external behavior. 
The Bible says that's not true. Obedience is not about external behavior. Obedience is about the heart. Obedience is about the heart. Look at verse 9. Moses says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. The whole purpose, Moses is saying, is not to change you externally. The whole point is to change your heart. It's to change you on the inside. It says in uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God says, here's the new covenant that I'm going to give to you in the last days. I'm going to write the law of God on your heart. I'm going to put it internally. You're not going to be able to spot a Christian simply by how they behave. They're not going to have an inane smile on their face. They're not going to laugh in the face of suffering. But they will know deep, lasting joy in their heart. And that will change their lives from the inside to the outside. Change for the Christian is a bit-by-bit process. Maturing, growing is a slow, gradual lasting process as the Spirit of God is sent by the Son of God into your heart to change you. It's radical. Your motivations are changed from the inside out. Your priorities are changed. It's seen in how you use your money. It's seen in how you spend your time. It's seen in your speech. But the change is from the inside to the outside. God comes and by His Spirit He writes His Word on your heart so that it will be a terrible thing for you to sin against him. Obedience is not external. It starts from the inside, like the gospel does, and works to the outside. And so you begin to develop new characteristics. Let's think of a few commandments. The integrity that the Eighth Commandment talks about starts to grow in your work and business practices. The purity of the Seventh Commandment starts to affect what you listen to and what you watch and where you go. The generosity and the love and the peace, they begin to come on the inside and then they're seen in your home as you rub shoulders with your wife and your kids or with your work colleagues. It's a process of growth that is not linear. (coughs) There will be times when you enjoy a closeness with God and you feel that you are closer to him than ever before. Intimacy, prayer time is not a grind. It's something that you run over on your schedule on. But then there are times when it is really hard work when you make mistakes, when you let people down, when you sin in a way that you thought you never would. And if that's you this morning, there is. There is always a way back. And his name is Jesus. Come to him this morning, I pray. God cares who you are when nobody is looking. God cares how you think when nobody can look into your mind. God cares how you speak when no one from church is listening in. Obedience is not about external behavior. It begins from the inside, and it's gradual. In um, Psalm chapter 1, there's a picture that's painted by the psalmist, by David. It's It's a painting of what a godly person, a godly person looks like. It says this. Well, let's look at it negatively. It does not say the mark of a godly person is that they pray from morning to night. It does not say that you can spot a godly person because they go to church every single Sunday, twice a Sunday. It does not say that uh, they go out talking to people about Jesus every single day. Although probably they do all of those things. They do pray, they do go to church, they do want to tell people about Jesus. But it doesn't say that they have to do it. 
what the picture paints, illustrates is this. Psalm 1 says, the mark of a godly person is that they delight. They delight in the law of God and they meditate on that day and night. A godly person loves God's word because it's God's voice. They don't have to be told to go and read the Bible. They don't have to be told that there's a prayer meeting on. They want to do it because they want to enjoy and know God personally, intimately. They want to know him and they want to be near to him. Do you know anything of that in your life, is your Christian life, if you're here this morning as a Christian? Is it a bit of a slog right now? God feels far away from you? Can I ask you very boldly, as an English person to another English person wouldn't do, are you obeying God? Are you taking God's commands seriously? Is there a sin in your life that you're just indulging in? That you think because no one else knows and because God hasn't come down yet that it's okay? Friends, if you are um, enjoying a secret sin, it will hugely and detrimentally affect your relationship with King Jesus. I met with someone very recently from a different church and they've sadly been in an affair for a long period of time. It's almost ruined their marriage. It's had a huge effect on their relationship with King Jesus. Friends, is there a hidden sin in your life? If you're a Christian this morning, that's affecting your relationship with God. If there is, can I urge you to stop it? Not because I'm saying it, because it will ruin your relationship, it will affect your uh, earthly relationships, and most importantly, it will ruin detrimentally your relationship with the king who you say you love. Please stop it. Why don't you take a period of time, two weeks, and pray every single day saying, Lord, please will you examine my life? Please will you send your spirit in a fresh way into my life? So that if there's anything that offends you, you would show it to me in these two weeks and help me with your power to put it to death. We can't do it by ourselves. We need God's help to do it every single time. It's a battle. It's warfare. But friends, will you take God's word seriously? God has set his love on you if you're a Christian. But that will be seen in obedience to his voice. Not to win his favor. You already have it. But so that you might enjoy intimacy with him. Some of us are in a different position. Some of us need to recognize that uh, this is talking about a reality that we don't know. Remember these two points that we thought about? The law of God can be used as a ladder for you to climb up to heaven, or the law of God can be used in a way to enjoy intimacy with God. Friends, if you think it's a ladder, can I encourage you to think again? God has already provided a way from, not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. God has sent his son to rescue you. You will never, you'll be crushed under the weight of the law. You will never be good enough to get to God. You'll never be holy enough to enjoy his holiness. You'll never be sweet enough to enjoy his sweetness. I might look like a nice guy, but if you came and lived with me, you would see there's a lot of, uh, underneath a sweet-ish exterior, there's a lot of, uh, bitterness, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot that I could do a lot better. And that's why if I tried to please God by obeying the law, it would crush me, it would ruin me. But if you're being crushed this morning, if you've tried to live in this way, if you're living in that first way as a ladder, you think you can please God with your own efforts, you're actually in a good place if you feel crushed this morning. Paul, in a book called Galatians in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, 
One of the reasons God gave us a law is so it's like a schoolmaster. You know, schoolmasters, they teach, they don't have black kind of hats anymore and long coats, but the word of God and the law of God is there as a schoolmaster to show us that we could never live in a way that's pleasing enough to God. We'd never be able to have a good enough record so that we can come to God and say, look at what I've done. This is why you should let me into heaven. Look at what I've achieved. It'll never be enough because God's standards are so much higher than ours. If you're feeling crushed by having to live according to the, the law of God, Galatians 3 is a great encouragement. It says, the law of God is a schoolmaster. And it's there to drive us to Jesus, to drive us to God's provision for us, to drive us to God's saviour, to drive us to God's rescuer and to God's redeemer. So if you feel crushed, then actually you're in a great place because even this morning you can come to Jesus and you can say, I can only be saved by you. I can only be rescued by you. I can only be ransomed by you. I can only be protected by you. Please come into my life. Why don't you do that this morning if you're not a Christian? Two ways that we can get to God. One is we think we can get there by ourselves. But the other one Moses points us to is this. It's the way of grace. When God comes and rescues us by his son, God comes with a lifeboat. God comes with a helicopter. God comes as a police car when we're in trouble. And God comes and wraps us up and takes us to a place of safety and security. Friends, please, Ask Jesus to become your saviour, even this morning. It's not about losing freedom. It's about enjoying him under his loving rule and under his loving authority. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We really have just taken a bird's eye view at this passage. But Father, thank you that the way to heaven is not for us to try and get to you. But as we sang about and celebrated at Christmas, you came down to rescue us so that God and that sinners might be reconciled. Father, please help us not to have any of these three misconceptions about law being about obedience, law being um, out of date and boring. The law is there for intimacy. The law is there so that we might see our makers uh, stamp upon us. The law is there so that we might have a heart that is changed by being driven to Jesus by seeing our own limitations and his wonderful sufficiency. Father, if we're new to Christian things or if we're not sure if we're a Christian or not, I pray this morning would have been a wake-up call for us. And if we are Christians, I pray, please, that you would help us not to rest on our laurels, but to enjoy a loving relationship with you through your Son. And that will be seen in a heart that wants to obey, and that will be seen in a life that is increasingly changed as your Spirit goes to work in our hearts to change us and to make us more like Jesus. Amen.